Hey there, and welcome to the Pseudo Show, brought to you by the Destination Linux Network. Today, I'm joined again by Bill to continue our conversation about open source and education. All that and more on this episode of the Pseudo Show. Hey there, and welcome to the Pseudo Show, where business meets open source. I'm Brandon, and today I'm joined again by Bill, better known in the Pseudo Show Matrix Room as CT Linux. Bill, it's good to have you on the Pseudo Show as a guest host again. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How have you been? Pretty good. Just uh, getting ready for today's episode and, uh, you know, busy at work and took on a project that reminded me I should have stayed back out of development. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's always nice to be reminded of what you appreciate and don't appreciate in life. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer friendly cloud platform. You can get started today with a $100 free credit by going to DO co slash dln and create your account digitalocean is helping you get your apps to market faster with their app platform here you can build deploy and scale your apps quickly by using their simple fully managed solution the app platform starts at just five dollars a month and has support for node.js python php ruby and many many more Get started today by going to do.co slash dln to get your $100 free credit. This promo is good for two months and will let you play with all kinds of ready-to-play apps from the DigitalOcean marketplace. That's do.co slash dln. And thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of The Pseudo Show. Today's episode is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and business organizations to store, share, and sync sensitive data. You can go to bitwarden.com DLN to check out this amazing open source password manager. Bitwarden works across your devices from mobile, desktop, browser plugins, and even the command line. We're all big fans of Bitwarden. One of those reasons is trust. So how does Bitwarden prove they can be trusted? Not only is Bitwarden open source, they have their code regularly audited by security experts. If you want to make the smart move like many awesome people in the community, then check out bitwarden.com DLN and get started for free. If you're like me, though, you'll want to show your appreciation by signing up for the premium edition, especially when the premium edition only starts at $10 per year. That's right, $10 per year. Thank you to Bitwarden for being a sponsor of the pseudo show and the entire Destination Linux network. Education organizations tend to go with the easiest option, as we illustrated in the last episode. Uh, easy doesn't necessarily mean the easy tech solution. Usually, that just meant good relationships, existing infrastructure, and known brands. Well, in order to break into these organizations, you've got to have some sort of key differentiator, not not just lower cost than the proprietary solutions, and it can't always be the privacy argument. There are so many groups out there involved in education that 
you have to be able to connect with, get their input, and find out why they want you to make a decision the way that you do. Yeah, I mean, like uh, kind of like what we talked about last week. It's like, uh, can you get the technology out of the way? And uh, not just because the cost in some districts and or even just other organiz- education organizations, cost is no object, right? So it, it's not just about cost. It's about teachers don't have time and administrators don't have time to deal with technology. Just make it work. <laughs> Sometimes it's a little more than that too. So if you break it down a little bit further and you start with the elephant in the room, which is money, for most public school districts, there is a funding program known as E-Rate. And for anybody out there listening that works in the education market, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But for everybody else, what E-Rate is, it's a federal reimbursement program for school districts that's based upon enrollment in a free and reduced lunch program. And there are a lot of metrics and requirements that have to be met. But what that does on top of the discounts that school systems already get from hardware vendors is make communications costs just that much lower. So what happens is, is then cost doesn't become as much of a barrier as it used to be. The downside in doing that with cost is that proprietary and closed source solutions become the preference. And is that simply because of the support? Do you think Bill? I, I, that's one of the things I just don't get. I mean, if, uh, um, something out there is better that maybe is maybe free and open source, like why is there that gravitation towards the proprietary solution in that regard? I think, you know, whether you're a teacher or a student or a parent or a guy working for a company, uh, we're always a little afraid of the unknown. So having support widely available is absolutely preferred. And being able to self-support a solution outside of any IT vendor is even better. So myself in the MSP field, I actually try to steer school districts towards having a solution that they can self-support in the event that they choose not to use our services anymore. We're not in a situation where they feel like they're locked in with us and they can feel free to bid out those services and that support to other vendors if they so choose. I was thinking about after our last conversation is big common themes that I see, whether if we're talking Google's solution, Microsoft's solution, Apple's solution, there's no infrastructure costs. I mean, there's going to be, you know, costs for a Chromebook, a laptop, an iPad, whatever ecosystem we're talking about, but there's uh, no infrastructure cost for a lot of these solutions. I mean, even going into other systems, even though they're paid and they're likely paid like LMS solutions, like canvas and Moodle. I mean, they're offering not just self-hosted, but they're, um, I mean, in the case of canvas, it's default to go with the software as a service solution. 
Like, is that like that, that that's the common theme I'm seeing, but is it lack of IT knowledge in these, in these, uh, uh, education systems or they, or is it, or is that just the, tr- you know, just like everywhere else, the trend is to go to software as a service, go to the cloud. You've touched upon something that's kind of interesting in the education circles. If you work for a, or you live in a, in an area where the school district is smaller, you might find that the IT role falls upon the shoulders of a teacher who has to juggle the responsibilities of teaching their normal load of classes, but also providing IT support. And what I always equate that to is, that's fine if you want to go that route, but you should see what happens when I try to teach a math class. Yeah. My history teacher was also the web designer. Right. And, And in some instances that works and in many others it doesn't because the experience and training isn't there for complex IT problems. And look, we're in 2022, we're dealing with ransomware, we're dealing with advanced malware, zero day exploits, bad patches. There are so many hurdles that even us IT professionals have to deal with on a daily basis that I can't picture what it's like for a teacher who's also trying to juggle that. Now in a larger district, obviously you would have probably an IT director or a CIO, you might have a network administrator and maybe a help desk technician assigned to each school in the district. And those resources are there. So picking a solution that has support definitely dovetails into making sure it's a solution that staff is trained in and is easy for them to use. If it's something that requires a lot of command line, they may not feel as comfortable with that type of solution, wherein if it's web-based or a point-and-click application, or they can call and get help, uh, a school district and their IT staff, and therefore the people that they answer to, are going to gravitate towards solutions that require less training. One of the other things that has come to mind is mostly, you know, when I when I think of schools i'm like i'm thinking for me i always think security and sometimes i just i'm like cloud providers are not always perfect you also need availability getting cloud providers aren't always perfect that heck it professionals aren't (laughs) uh either the trend of going to SaaS and keeping things on prem but let's focus on on on-prem bill like in the space, like what's staying, what's not going to software as a service? There are always going to be certain situations and instances where you need on-prem. And one of the things that comes to mind is LDAP. You have a school district that is trying to reduce the overhead complexity of managing usernames and passwords, especially for high schoolers that forget passwords frequently. So having an on-prem LDAP solution that's right there, it's not tied to the cloud, or if the cloud is down, you can't get to it, that synchronizes to a student information system, to email, file shares, what others, whatever other services that that school district requires, uh, that's, that's a service I see staying. Believe it or not, another service that I have seen tend to stay is 
in-house CAD curriculum. And what do I mean by that? You have a lab of maybe 20 machines where you're teaching Autodesk, SolidWorks, AutoCAD. There's uh, another one that comes to mind that Google SketchUp, thank you, that I couldn't remember. But what happens in putting those in the cloud is then the school district is tied to those ongoing and ever-increasing cloud costs, wherein they may see a budget decrease the next year. And at that point, what do you cut? So that has been a service that tends to stay in-house. And, and yes, there are other esoteric services like uh, media production, television production studios built into a school. The, just the cost of keeping that storage and ingress and egress transactional charges tend to be a little bit of a sticker shock when, when you move that into the cloud at times. Uh, sometimes financial services also remain on-prem because they're concerned about security and who's accessing my financial systems when it's sitting in a cloud service somewhere. The other thing I was thinking about is, I don't think we brought this up. There are some states, you know, they're mandating specific pieces of software. I mean, I think in your home state, you've met, I think you've mentioned this to me before. I don't, we didn't bring it up last time, but they're mandating like you must use this piece of software to be compliant. Is that, that's probably also a big driver of behavior. It's not so much mandates. We, we started off with mandates, but that turned into, hey, we can't afford that mandate. So can we have some recommendations and guidance? So most of the schools here in Connecticut are power school based, and many of them are using Google G Suite for their services. And then therefore, tie-ins to Google G Suite like Securely or GoGuardian for content reporting and analysis. And so in some cases here, like the man like may not be mandated, but strongly <laughs> recommended to go down these paths. Strongly recommended, absolutely. I mean, of course, we are also mandated to have content filtering solutions that are CIPA compliant, Child Information Protection Act compliant, uh, wherein minimum requirements such as pornography are blocked at every single school. And our fiber provider that handles all of the public schools and many private schools automatically blocks that even outside of the school building. So if you find a way around, let's say the on-premise filter, let's say it's a simple DNS filter and you know you're, you're genius that figures out how to use a different DNS service and the firewall isn't uh, locked down very well. Well, guess what? It's blocked at the WAN level, so you're not going to get to it while you're in the building anyway. Sometimes it gets a little sticky, though, when we have a school district that says, how do I provide content filtering at home? And that's where sometimes a boundary may or may not get crossed with what's legal and what's not legal to do content blocking at home. And for anybody that's wondering what my stance on that is, I'm just a guy in the internet. I'm not a lawyer. And I would ask you as parents, if you're concerned about that, to speak with the IT professionals at your respective school districts. Yeah. Since we're on the subject of content filtering, I mean, one of the, one of the goals here is to get people thinking about, you know, think outside the box, get uh, start looking at open source alternatives. Like you know a lot about 
about uh, specific certifications. I'm I don't uh, for for these. I look. We look. You know, I've looked into a couple of solutions. Like there's some for from like ClearOS. This is not Clear Linux. This is ClearOS, which is based on uh, CentOS seven still, I believe. It's just like a squid filter, but it came up as possible. You know, possibly something that's certified. But what in the field have you been able to actually uh, be able to implement? with uh and remain uh compliant well this may be an answer that sounds a little contrarian but one of the things that we do not deviate away from and as an msp are commercial content filters and the answer is quite simple and there are many wonderful open source ways to block websites. However, we live in a world where the internet is more than just a website. It's an app, it's a service, it's a program. And you need some pretty heavy duty layer seven content management systems in place in order to be able to disseminate what's appropriate and what's not. So I'll I'll go back a little bit. When I first started working in education, uh, especially in in, in the school that I was at, we were all issued a hardware appliance. Uh, The brand is not relevant at this point, but it went in line between our core switch and our firewall. And everything was managed exclusively through that. The problem with that was when the appliance overheated and failed, nobody had internet at the school because you weren't allowed to have unfiltered internet whatsoever. So it became another point of failure. Many schools moved to next generation firewalls after that. And a next generation firewall is kind of an all-in-one unified threat management appliance. So pick on Fortinet, SonicWall, Cisco, Juniper as some of the more popular commercial options. Those are very popular because you as the IT professional can log into the device and say, I want to block all of social media. And that's a wide spanning category. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, many different applications out there. You can click a button and that category is blocked. And there are groups of people that are paid to keep IP addresses and DNS names up to date on a regular basis. If you want to block by Active Directory group, for instance, a group for students and a group for teachers, many of those appliances will do that. However, if you fast forward a few more years with the advent of the Chromebook and the iPad and the tablet in education, we have discovered that Active Directory-based filtering simply doesn't work. You don't sign into an iPad with Active Directory credentials. It's not what the device was designed to do. So how do you do that? Well, with proper subnetting and VLANing, you can do the same kind of content filtering wherein you have a teacher subnet, a student subnet, a guest subnet. At the schools that we support, what we've actually done is uh, started to implement PFSense at our schools as a firewall option, but we don't do content filtering on it. So we leverage the resources already available in our state, and we use outbound network address translation to have the 
servers and network devices go out one IP, the adults go out another IP, the students go out a third IP, and SIP traffic goes out a separate IP block that's unfiltered. And when you call our state and say, hey, I'm provisioning a voice over IP phone system, they hand you a separate IP block that is just strictly for that system, and they block all other traffic but SIP to make sure that that network doesn't get used for what it shouldn't be uh, used for. And I find that that tends to be the most effective in many, in many situations because now you've eliminated those ongoing recurring costs for content filtering services because we're utilizing resources that our state fortunately already provides for us. As fast forward a couple more years, and now we've run into this very complex problem called COVID-19. So what did COVID-19 do to the school district? Well, basically, it took all of the IT professionals by their ankles, flipped them over, and shook them, and, and forced all their knowledge out of the top of their head. But it, it made us really rethink as a team of how we prioritize content filtering because the first thing that was asked was how are we going to protect the kids at home because now that delineation between the classroom and the home is gone. And if you're a parent and you had one or multiple kids at your house while you were trying to work and manage COVID-19 and be a teacher all at the same time, I absolutely tip my hat to you. In fact, I'll tip my red hat to you. So what, what that did is many schools that use Chromebooks started signing up for GoGuardian and or Securely or another Google-based service because as long as the student is signed into that Chromebook with their school account, they are sent through the appropriate filtering mechanisms that are partnered with Google. Now, a very good friend of mine was an IT administrator at a larger school district, and he had to set up very complicated inbound VPNs, proxies, and other filtering mechanisms because they had an iPad deployment and therefore they weren't signing into Chrome devices. So there are, there are many ways to accomplish the goal of content filtering at your school. But more importantly, there are many different approaches to content filtering. And I want to talk about this for a second because I remember being that IT director at the school and said, what should I block and what should I not block? So I'll give you an example of a couple of different use cases. I have one school where everybody is open to just about everything except for what's required to be blocked by the state. Teachers, students, doesn't matter. If you are a student and you abuse this privilege, you are put into a lower tier of internet access where you are restricted to a handful of sites. If while you're in that particular tier, you continue to violate the school's network usage agreement, you are put into an extremely restricted group of websites, which is just basically email and direct Google services and that's it, enough to just basically do your essential classwork. The idea of that is teach the kids responsible internet activity and how to be good digital citizens. I have other schools that say, well, we really feel like 
we should control what the kids see and don't see at all levels. So that's where access is more broken down by groups of grades, students, adults, guests, and those rules become a little bit more complex. So to all of you educational IT providers and professionals out there, there are so many right answers and just work within your community to find out what the best approach to content filtering is for you. And don't be afraid to revisit it every now and then because the internet changes and rules change and administrations change and teachers change and therefore needs change. So don't be afraid to revisit your content filtering situation from time to time. You brought up, uh, you know, teaching kids to be good, uh, digital citizens. And I kind of want to change gears here now. And you're scaring me, Brandon. uh, (laughs) I want to talk, well, I want to talk about the actual device. I mean, I think it is actually important to not just use the device issue to a student as a tool to learn you know, the standard subjects, math, English, history, and do their homework on for those respective subjects. I also see it as an opportunity to teach students the proper way to use the device and allow them to break it. I think it's important for people to understand how things work. Technology is pervasive in our society and is important for future skills that students will need to know when they go into the workforce. If we could wave a magic wand, what do you think that would look like and how would you approach it, Bill? And then I'll take a crack at it. You've really started to make the wheels turn in my head here. I think that particular question has a couple of answers, and I'm not trying to weasel my way out of it. I think of what happens when you try to give a five-year-old a Chromebook or another type of device that requires some sort of login and say, all right, sign it with your username and password, and they look at you and say, is it snack time? So that, to me, requires more of a tablet type of interface. And therefore, my go-to pick for that, if I had to wave a magic wand in a perfect world, would be the Pine tab in, uh, for more advanced users. You know, as you go up into the middle school grades, maybe a Linux computer with limited administrative privileges. Because again, you need to balance learning with lost productivity time. So a student that comes in and says, well, I was in the middle of installing OpenSUSE, but then I powered the machine off and I don't know what to do. What do I, what, what am I supposed to do? Well, you're going to have to reformat and reinstall your operating system. Okay. Well, how much time are you going to need to do that? Well, I need the rest of the period to do that. All right. Well, you're now a day behind. For lower grades, I find that tends to be a detriment. If you are a school like a high-tech high in San Diego where everything is project-based learning, you can get away with maybe giving kids a Linux machine with root access because you can teach your students, if the curriculum is there to support it, how to properly maintain a computer or a mobile device. How often do you update it? How do you prevent a bad update from breaking your system? 
with their root account because you'll have the appropriate logging and reporting facilities to do that. Those tend to be quite expensive and cumbersome to manage. But I do think you touch upon a good point, and that is we need to, in my opinion, spend some time with students teaching them computer basics. What's actually in your computer and how does it really work? Sure, you can type on it, but did you know what RAM actually does? And what happens to your computer if you get low on RAM? Or my computer is telling me there are bad sectors. Well, what are bad sectors actually mean? Should I keep going? Sure, why not? Oh, I was supposed to save my data somewhere. So to that effect, if you're going to allow someone to tinker with a machine, I would strongly encourage whomever that is that's doing that to leverage some sort of cloud storage so that nothing vital exists on the machine itself. And maybe even an immutable operating system. I get so I'm gonna wave my magic wand, lower grades, you know, I don't know. I, I've used the pine tab. They're okay. Maybe the next generation, but the current one, I don't know. But <laughs> but the I'm thinking fourth grade and up, fourth grade all the way to twelfth grade. It's actually if I had to pick the hardware right now, it's the ThinkPad 11e Yoga. The current uh, generation is Gen six. Is that the one with the so, two and one? The screen folds down the other yes, way. Yeah, yeah. So it's a two and one. Now. Yeah, this is a Windows laptop, but typical Lenovo ThinkPad fashion, I'm betting. I don't own one of these right now, but I was looking at one for my daughter. Uh, and I bet it could run Linux, no problem. I might end up with one. We'll see. Now, what makes this thing so cool is, yeah, it has a stylus, has the whole gr- the, the, uh, garage for the stylus. That, I, that's going to get lost in 20 seconds after it's issued to the student. <laughs> but the screen apparently will take input with a number two pencil. Now that I want to see. It's like if you want to do writing, it apparently will take input from a number two pencil. So that I'm like, that's really neat. So like that's the hardware. Like that's the hardware I'd I'd want to see. ThinkPads are generally built like tanks, and uh, at least every ThinkPad I've owned has been built fantastic. Uh, operating system. Uh, you brought it up, so uh, the immutable. Uh, it, it'd be Fedora. Fedora Silver Blue all the way. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think you wrote this down in the in the notes. Don't use a rolling release. I mean, and, you know, but, or don't use Gen two. <laughs> you're you're making I, me I, relive some dark days. It, that's just not going to be fun for anyone, and you know, or even OpenSUSE MicroOS, something that is that can be easily rolled back. So if a student is playing with something in the OS that, that they have privilege to to do, but they screw it up, some uh, like probably you know usually it's probably from installing a piece of software. But what's great about the about Silverblue is the read only file system, so you can't make 
a lot of changes, except in a couple of uh, directories. Uh, that that's that's the approach I would take, especially for students that are definitely uh, on that path uh, to uh, technology. But even then, it 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 still has that curiosity. Uh, I think it's still uh, that that age group. Uh, you know, which I think is essentially fourth grade to to twelve. So, rolling release for those of us out there that like to live on the bleeding edge, rolling release is the greatest thing since sliced bread. But if you look at it from a practical point of view, someone has to manage and constantly update a wide array of systems and devices on a network for rolling release in order for it to not really break things. That takes up a lot of time and resources from an IT professional that they just might not have. And if you want to address the commercial support situation, it's not really commercially supported. What I would love to do, or I'd love to see, is commercial Linux vendors out there like Red Hat or SUSE release an enterprise version of an immutable file system, because I think many different organizations, even outside of education, would be inclined to adopt it because they have that protection with the rollback feature. Personally, I think that's perfect for your computer labs. There's great big enterprise grade solutions to, you know, manage Linux operating systems and manage device deployment as well as patching and configuration management of those systems. I actually found it was mostly it's mostly meant for Ubuntu, but uh, I didn't see any reason why I wouldn't be able to deploy and manage Fedora or SUSE. And that was this uh, Linux muster. It's a, I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, I'll have a link in the show notes. I had a chance to play with it. And what was really cool about it, Bill, is I, if I deploy a fleet of desktops or laptops for that matter, um, I could quickly refresh it. It's more meant for like a computer lab. I could e- easily see this like, oh, I plug in my laptop, I need to rebuild it, or or there's a new image, push it to the computer. That I thought that was a pretty interesting way of handling it. And I think that lowering the barrier to entry, whether that's with a commercial solution or non-commercial solution, I think is easy to do. I would agree. Talking about Linux desktops and, and labs and managing it, like one of the things that, that I don't know, this keeps me up at night uh, every once in a while. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe that's a little hyperbolic, but what's the future of Linux, like what I, I think the future of Linux in the, the data center is well secure. I mean, that that's, that's a given. Uh, one of the things that I, I uh, want to make sure happens is that Linux desktop remains a thing. I, I love Linux desktop. I, I just happened to stumble across it when I was in, I wasn't even in high school yet. I was in junior high. You know, what you use as a child is what you expect to use when you enter the workforce, like one of the things that I expected when I entered the workforce was to either use WordPerfect or Microsoft Office. Like that was just the expectation I had. One of the things that I'm 
looking at, and I'm looking at with some concern, is the uh, prevalence of Google. Well, Microsoft has never left. And I'm not really all that concerned with the Microsoft side. I mean, that, that's, that's been pervasive now forever. Yeah, I'd love to see LibreOffice or OnlyOffice take the world by storm, but that that's just not there with schools adopting Google Mass. Um, right? what, what, what do you think about that, Bill? Like that, That's one of the big things I've been thinking about. Well, the business need is usually what drives the device. And while the Chromebook is very popular in primary education, it's not actually that popular in secondary education where universities tend to gravitate towards Office 365. The way that the Linux desktop will succeed long-term in the hands of those users is being exposed to it at younger grades as an alternative, giving people the power to make a choice. And I think we are responsible for teaching them that there are more alternatives out there than just Microsoft and Google or Apple. And it's up to them to explore whether they want to go down that road or not. And as you said before, that curiosity, if they have that, they're going to explore that. And and that's where us as Linux technologists are going to get the best return on investment is, is investing time in, the, in those potential lifelong Linux users that want to learn. And one of the things that I have found in the younger generations that use Linux is they start to understand the concept that open source is more than just software. That open source really is a lifestyle. It is about giving back, whether it's reporting bugs, documentation, learning to code and contributing to your favorite open source project, donating funds to a popular open source project. They look around the world and they see things through a different lens once they really embrace Linux. I think investing the time and resources into those users will help adopt the Linux desktop. Maybe not at the pace that you or I would want to see it per se, but I think the chances of success would be much higher. Play the long game here. And like when I was doing research for uh, for this series, one of the things I noticed is uh, open source solutions seem to have more prevalence outside of the United States. So, I, for example, uh, school and student management. The only open source solutions that I found for school and student management were built for schools in Europe, like specifically Spain. Like uh, that, that's one of the systems I found. Uh, and that Linux Muster, that was actually built for schools in Germany. It was built for specifically managing computer labs in Germany. Like all the documentation is in German. So that was a lot of fun. It brought back a lot of uh, memories uh, of uh, using SUSE when I was younger, <laughs> when error messages would pop up in German. So. <laughs> I uh, I have been a SUSE and Open SUSE user since 1999, and I can absolutely relate to that statement. And I've 
fortunately through the open source communities, uh, especially the open SUSE ones, I've been able to make connections with students and educators and parents and other people about how schools work over in Europe. And it's really interesting to see how they tend to adopt a more open source first and then proprietary second. And I think some of that has to do with uh, some of the European regulations, such as GDPR and privacy management. So I think in, if we can lean uh, to look at our European neighbors as examples of where this is successful, we can try to take that model and modify it a little bit so that it could be just as successful here. And again, I think it comes down to giving people a choice. If we, you know, Brandon, I, I was young once using Linux and I remember, you know, carrying a pitchfork and a church running around the school, espousing Linux to everybody and being looked at as some sort of derelict, strange human being. So I think giving people just the choice, here's Linux, you can explore it if you want to, and then seeing where it goes. And if they come back to you and say, this is something I want to know more about, how do I use this? This is interesting. This is this whole free software community. And we allow those users a voice. I think you'll see Linux desktop usage continue to grow long-term. You're the one running around spousing Linux. I was the one running around with a ThinkPad <laughs> and not just running and running Linux on. <laughs> I, I had, I had a, an old ThinkPad laptop. I remember my IBM A31P very fondly. I had a T22. Oh, wow. Yeah. Before we wrap it up, like one of the things I wanted to, I wanted to touch on was just support, support your schools. If you're a technology professional, they don't have a lot of, uh, technology support personnel volunteer, like help them out that I think that's one of the best ways to help. If you are a parent, ask about how your technology is used. If you are a technology professional, offer to sit in on a technology council or a technology committee meeting and learn about how your school uses technology and then come up with a plan to maybe help out where you can because every school does things differently. And the last thing you wanna do is volunteer to fix a network issue and then find out it's on a piece of equipment you've never heard of in your life. And now you're married to it. If you are an MSP, and this is the world that I live in, if you have time and resources in your company and you have a, a server kicking around that you're not using, if you are well-versed in Linux, try out some of the different open source alternatives such as Snipeit, Inventory Management, Orange HRM, OS Ticket. There are so many different web applications out there that you could deploy either through a private public cloud provider, containers, Kubernetes, and show your school district, hey, if you're using ADP to manage your time off management system, would you be interested in seeing a demo of 
this particular one, which is free and open source. If you have the resources and you're willing to you know, dedicate some time, build that relationship. But the whole point is, and, and Brandon, you kind of alluded to this in this question, build relationships with the people in your community. That's what this boils down to, because you're not going to be able to implement any kind of technology successfully, whether it's proprietary or open sourced, without having a good relationship in place first. One of the things I wanted to, uh, uh, before before we wrap up, is point out like every single one of those solutions that Bill just mentioned has uh, not just a self-hosted option, but also a hosted option. So they offer these yeah, a lot of these open source solutions uh, that are being developed by these uh, organizations. They're monetizing them through uh, offering them software as a service. OS Tickets, one example. Orange HRM is another. That's a great way of not just getting open source into an organization that doesn't want, maybe not necessarily want to host it themselves like a school. But it also helps support the funding of open source projects. Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, your feedback is welcome. Head on over to pseudo.show/discuss. If you'd like more of the pseudo show, you can find it over at pseudo.show and on social media at pseudo show podcast. You can catch more awesome content over our network partners, destinationlinux.network. You can support the show on Patreon at pseudo.show slash Patreon or sponsors at pseudo.show slash sponsors. There'll be links in the show notes. Bill, anywhere you'd like to send our listeners? You can find me roaming around the Destination Linux metaverse on Matrix and on Discord as CT Linux. You can follow me on most uh, social media at dbrandonjohnson or my website open-tech.net and new content at destinationlinux.network. Thank you for listening to the Pseudo Show today, where business meets open source. Until next time.